You're listening to KRUI 89.7, Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests, and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. In this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are coming soon to film scene. Our lineup includes Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, which plays this Saturday night, October 18th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. Next, we'll be discussing the Japanese horror film Infection, which plays Tuesday, October 21st at 6 p.m. as part of Bijou Horizons, a series dedicated to bringing awareness to world cinema. Finally, we'll be discussing the Coen Brothers classic Fargo, which will be screened this Sunday, October 19th at 7 p.m. on Film Scene's Rooftop for the final open-air show of the season. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-hosts. Filling in for Katherine Steinbach today, we have Patrick Brown, member of the Bijou Film Board and a regular guest on Banter. Welcome, Pat. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And Changmin Yu, also a member of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome, Changmin. Hi, everyone. And I'm Leah Vonderheide, the Executive Director of the Bijou Film Board. I should also mention that all three of us are Film Studies PhD students in the Department of Cinematic Arts at the University of Iowa. Let's start with our first film, Phantom of the Paradise. Phantom of the Paradise is Brian De Palma's 1974 musical slash comedy slash horror film. Although this was my first time viewing the cult classic. I know that you, Pat, have seen it many, many times. A few now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you can give us a bit of background before we begin our discussion. All right. Phantom of the Paradise stars William Finley in the title role as the Phantom, a songwriter named Winslow Leach who haunts the Paradise Concert Hall after his mutilation and purported death. Leach is exploited, manipulated, and betrayed by the record producer known only as Swan, a pop music impresario who seems to literally be in league with the devil. Swan is played by Paul Williams, a well-known songwriter of the 1970s. He wrote The Rainbow Connection. Um, uh, And the tortured Leech wants only his beloved Phoenix, played by Jessica Harper, uh, to sing his rock opera version of Faust. (laughs) The resulting uh, conflict is uh, full of murder, mayhem, and camp, and evokes along the way seemingly most aspects of 60s and 70s culture, from the Beach Boys to the Parallax View. Although it culls its narrative from two or three or maybe more 19th century classics like Faust, Phantom of the Opera, and The Picture of Dorian Gray, Phantom of the Paradise is a film that makes it difficult to tell what's coming next. By virtue of its somewhat anarchic mixture of tragedy, satire, De Palma's characteristic obsession with media and surveillance, and its frenetic New Hollywood aesthetics. Like his later body double and its multitudinous film references and focus on media technologies, Phantom of the Paradise feels like a surreally funny nightmare about mid-20th century American culture. But it's also just a fun, campy musical. These days, Phantom of the Paradise is, like the subsequent year's Rocky Horror Picture Show, a bona fide, if less noted, cult classic. Although it was a resounding flop when it came out on Halloween 1974, its 40th anniversary this year brought a brand new two-disc Blu-ray release and a reissue of its soundtrack. Def Punk spoke last year of having seen the film at least 20 times when it was revived in Paris in the 1990s. 
and it is still held dear in the only North American city it made any money in upon its initial release, which is Winnipeg, Canada. For some reason, the movie was huge in Winnipeg, providing perhaps the strangest we're big and blank brag in the entertainment industry. So my opening question to you two would be, why do you think uh, this cult, this is a, a cult classic and what cultish ingredients does it have? And is it deserving of cultish love in the same way that it's obvious foil the Rocky Horror Picture Show is? I guess this question kind of assumes that you guys uh, like Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I, I just, I guess I assume of everybody. <laughs> um, man, I before I answer this question, I would like to know more about how, like, cult cult culture (laughs) Uh, and the idea of cult love and cult classics. Um, Because, as I said in my intro, I haven't actually uh, seen this film before, and I'm not a big Rocky Horror um, fangirl either. So I don't have a natural way into this type of film. I watch it and I feel perplexed about its cultishness. So I'm not, I, I need, I almost want to ask you that question. That's, I, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 it's really hard. It's really hard. I think to predict what will become a cult classic, because you know that anything that tries too hard to be a cult classic is probably going to fail. Uh, but it, it seems like uh, some degree of failure is uh, upon its initial release is a necessity, um, but also this sort of ironic uh, campy tone um, where where nothing is really quite taken seriously. Um, one of the things I really like about the movie is that at times the story of Winslow Leach is, is kind of affecting because the things that happen to him are terrible, but also the character, it, he's such a caricature to begin with. And then he's such a caricature of the sort of Gothic archetype of the tortured soul who lives in the basement of the opera. Um, uh, I, I mean, the, the costuming is so ridiculous. The style is so, uh, so Baroque, I guess in a way, so exaggerated and, um, uh, and playful. Um, I guess these are all sort of cultish elements and things that it that it has in common with Rocky Horror Picture Show. But I'd say the style of this movie is maybe even more stylized. Um, I think also a sort of willingness to image uh, sort of gory things. I mean, so this movie isn't gory in the same way that, say, Infection, which we'll talk about <laughs> later, is. Uh, but but it does have these moments of sort of uh, like explicit explicit if not terribly realistic depictions of, of violence that that seems like also a sort of cultish. Well, like if a it. film came out like successful, it wouldn't be a cult classic. It would right. be a classic right. because <laughs> it doesn't have to go through this you know process of rediscovery. So I feel like that's my be one factor to say this is a cult film. But I will also fa- say that because you put these films together, like Phantom of the Paradise and Rocky, uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show, and they all have this custom party theme, and they all have this uh, collective phenomena uh, as one of the most important threats uh, going through the narrative. So I feel like it has to be something that could drag or to absorb all this audience into a collective mania to be a cult classic in that sense. Because that could, in that sense, 
it could be made into a ritual. Like you could see Rocky Horror Picture Show every year. It becomes a festival, right? Yeah. So are people doing that with Phantom of the Paradise as well? They're getting dressed up and going to group sc- screenings of it. Uh, I'm. I don't. I, I imagine that people dress up, but I don't think that that's as much a part of the phenomenon as it is for for Rocky Horror Picture Show. I know, for instance, that very recently a version of the uh, a fan made version of that of the weird plastic helmet mask that that the Phantom wears in this movie that's sort of got a bird's beak and big eye holes um, was on sale on Etsy. Like somebody made it and, and was and was it was actually sold on Etsy, so I couldn't get it. But uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so there there does seem to be some extent of uh, to some extent there's there's fan participation in that way, but I don't think it's uh, it's not as sort of um, habitual or established as it is for Rocky Horror Picture Show. I wonder if people like this type of um, I mean, we're talking specifically about musicals. If there's just something about a musical. Um, whether it's a classic or a cult classic that will continue to have afterlives because of just sort of high school musical theater group culture, sort of there's always going to be a new uh, generation of teenagers who get really into their theater group in high school and then they start getting together to watch these films and learn the music and sing them at each other in the, you know, the backstage of their theater rehearsals, like that kind of thing. If that simply, it just lends itself to that kind of uh, teenage experience. Yeah. I, I think that's a good point, actually participation. So the, the sort of special shared object is part of the cult thing, but then also like an ability to participate with it on some level. So whether you're sort of ironically appropriating this bad old text or whether I guess, you know, music carries with it its own kind of participation because you want to learn the songs and you want to sing along. Um, so, yeah, that I, I think that's a that's a good point. And there, I think there there are several other sort of cult musicals uh, out there. Arguably, the the Who's uh, two movies are are sort of cult movies, and and Pink Floyd's uh, The Wall. Right. Well, I feel like another characteristic of this film is that it has this perfect combination of highbrow and lowbrow culture, like by referring to all these classic novels that you have to read in high school, like the picture of Dorian Gray and that sort of stuff. So I feel like uh, because, I mean, Brian De Palma really makes uh, this film into something really campy and in a sense, very seductive, like all these classics are transformed into something like really attractive that it could be seen in like uh in a contemporary setting so i feel like that definitely adds to the attraction of this film the the quality of camp just in and of itself also i mean and to bring all these classics. Oh, the, bring the classics. Yeah, I was actually thinking the same thing when I was watching it, that there's always going to be that level of gratification um, in terms of of high culture illusions in films. Like, people are always going to enjoy that. I mean, even I was watching it, and I was like, oh, a picture of Dorian Gray, I'm so smart. <laughs> and, there's, you know, there's so many of those going on in that. 
Yeah, there's also the great uh, Touch of Evil reference uh, when his first sabotage of the of the. So they're putting on a version of Faust without without the Phantom's permission, right? Swan has stolen the music, and the the Phantom's not happy about this, so he sabotages the production by putting a bomb in the back of a prop car. Oh yes, 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 yeah. And it's it's sort of it's got the De Palma like split screen, giving us two two camera angles at, at once. Um, but it's sort of an appropriation of the famous opening of Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. That was actually maybe one of my favorite scenes, both, again, for the like satisfaction of getting the illusion, and then also um, split screens should be used more often, I think. With- I, I, agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I think it's also the best scene in, in Brian De Palma's later Carrie, uh, which apparently Sissy Spacek was like a, uh, an assistant on, on Phantom of the Paradise and then was cast in Carrie. Oh, okay. Oh, really? um, uh, but yeah, the best scene in that movie is probably the split screen scene. I think. Yes, definitely. I mean, it is such an intelligent, uh, intelligent. Um, I know reimagination of the great tracking shot in the opening of uh, of the Touch of Evil. So I feel like uh, I even love that particular scene better than uh, his later films. For example, Carrie. I would say because it is such an effective technique in this film, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the building of the suspense and uh, the just the smartness of it, of, of, of it being a reflexive way of filming that scene. So as a viewer, you're just, even while you're watching it and being caught up in the narrative and being caught up in the suspense, you're also just able to also simultaneously be impressed by the way it's being filmed. Right. <laughs> if right. that makes sense, yeah. And there's sort of, there there's, sort of like several layers of reflexivity there too, because of course it's, it's in the context of this uh, really kitschy stage production that's going on. So the, so the cars, you know, it's not a real car. It's just a fake car being, being wheeled out uh, in the middle of a, of a kitschy performance of, you know, it, the musical that they're putting on stops resembling Faust immediately there. I, I don't understand. <laughs> there's no, there's no narrative. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any scientist who sells his soul to the devil. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, which you know, one of the ways you can look at this film is as is as uh, a sort of very pointed satire about the music industry, and you know, Swan is the devil, is is big bad, uh, the big bad record label that's stealing the souls of not just the music but also the the performers and the songwriters, um, and and De Palma does some I think some pretty interesting stuff about uh, media technology and, and the archive, like the the big bad guy at the end of the movie, the thing that needs to be defeated is uh, Swan's video archive, which is actually uh, the name of the Phantom of the Paradise fan wiki uh, online. Is Swan's, oh. Swan's, Swan's. I didn't know what you were talking about. <laughs> I don't remember Wikipedia being involved in this movie. It's way ahead of its time. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun, but yeah, it also has a, a lot of depth. It's sort of a postmodern gothic satire about uh, the recording industry, the record industry. But it still holds together. It, it just doesn't, doesn't just like explode. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we end on that note? Again, Phantom of the Paradise plays at Film Scene this Saturday night, October 18th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. For more information on Bijou After Hours, please check out our website at bijou.uiowa.edu. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss infection.
No means no. There's nothing that warrants rape. Just because she's drunk and can't answer, it's still rape. The Rape Victim Advocacy Program can help you if you've been raped with counseling, legal, and medical advocacy. Help is only a phone call away. The local rape crisis line is 319-335-6000. Or call the RVAP at 1-800-284-7821. Or go online at www.rvap.org. Help end sexual violence in Iowa City. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our second film. Infection is a 2004 Japanese horror film that takes place in a rather poorly run hospital, I think. Uh, But when it comes to horror films, I'm well out of my intellectual, emotional, and psychological depth. So I'm hoping, Changmin, you can provide us with some context before we begin our discussion. Well, glad to. Well, Infection is a... Uh, it's very much entrenched in the tradition of Japanese horror films with all these gory details of blood, green woods, and mirror flashes of hallucination and specter. The amount of green slime in this film is just beyond my imagination. I somehow feel that we really need some ghostbusters to clean up this mess. So the story is set in a dilapidated hospital. The owner disappeared and left a mess for all the doctors in this hospital to clean up. They don't have enough clean needles and other medical equipment. Everybody here has to make do. We, the audiences, are being put into this strange, eerie, and uncomfortable environment, waiting to be scared by sudden appearances. For example, the old woman who has Alzheimer's disease wanders around, claiming that she is still surrounded by her families in the reflections of mirror or window. The boy who wears a mask of Inari, uh, which is a god of foxes in Japan, smells at us weirdly. This topo seems to me is extra temporal, only embodying all forms and knots of social oppression. For that reason, it is hard not to read this film as an allegory of the Japanese society. People in this hospital are in a certain complicit relationship. Everyone wants to survive and to achieve that they have. And so they have to sacrifice um, part of their souls or their ethical principles. We have a veteran physician who tries to threaten his colleagues into researching this Wu's disease by his possible knowledge of their crime and by, by his seniority. We have another nurse who thinks that she has to teach all the newcomers how to do things right. These instances make this film almost like a microcosm of the so very strict Japanese patriarchal hierarchy. Of course, uh, that genre films function like allegories is something that is very old and stale, like a story being told again and again. But I guess my first question for you people would be, did this horror film from Japan strike you as something different from, say, an American horror film? I I suppose I'm the one to answer, or who is supposed to answer this one. Uh, yeah, I, I I think it's different... In, in that uh, the film 
pretty clearly pretty early on um i i think abandons uh abandons a rational explanation for what's going on right so p- pretty clearly you know i just don't i don't think green ooze would would uh could could make it in the american market uh <laughs> really well, just just this sort of um, so the, whatever disease is happening in this hospital clearly is evocative of well Ebola, right? It it like liquefies people's internal organs and causes green slime to come out of their uh, ears and other orifices, and and I just feel like that's that's a little bit cartoonish for for American horror films. No, I'm so unfamiliar with the horror genre that well. this is. I mean, very possibly the first legitimate horror film I've ever seen. And um, I I had to watch it carefully, as you guys know, uh, so that I wouldn't have nightmares for the rest of my life. But uh, I, the the Green Goo seemed a little silly. Um, But at the same time, I really appreciated what you can do in the horror genre in terms of cinematography and editing and just sort of the fun you can have that even when something horrifying isn't happening on screen, you can really play with the sort of of people just sort of standing menacingly behind another person suddenly takes on whole new meaning or slightly canted shot or just odd angles or odd cuts in the editing are just filled with all kinds of exciting, eerie sensations for the viewer, you know, regardless of green goo scenes. So... I, I really that part I really enjoyed about this film and thought, huh, I could see like what horror is bringing to genre filmmaking. But that's probably all old news for you guys. <laughs> well, do, do you really believe that red tomato sauce or red pen is more realistic or more appropriate for horror films? I'm just wondering. Uh, no, no, no. So I, I should be clear about this. Uh, so. I, I don't use the term realistic as like sort of like a, a an objectively definable term. It's sort of like determined by uh, you know cult, cultural standards of of what constitutes realism in a film. Um, so and there, there's this. I, I think in popular horror film right now, you have things like well, I guess Paranormal Activity isn't really cool right now because they did five of those and they're done now. But you do have a lot of stuff that I think is is supposed to be. Um, even if it has ghosts, it's supposed to be sort of uh, it just just like green goo doesn't fit into the contemporary mainstream horror world. <laughs> Maybe you know, awesome straight to video B horror from from the uh, from the nineties, from the eighties or nineties. Um, but yeah, just as a response to that question, would this movie make it in the American market? I feel like an American adaptation would would probably switch the green goo to red. And then, and then actually lose, lose a lot of the meaning of, of the film because it's because I don't want don't I don't want to say too much, but it's <laughs> a, it. but it's about it's about color it's about the color of the goo in, in a way. Um, but I feel like if this film were remade in America, they would try to make it. Uh, uh, I think they would make it like pus colored or something, yeah, right? Because yeah, the green goo actually made me feel a little safer. It felt right. a little bit like Nickelodeon or something. Yeah. Like oh, it's just. It's just green goo. That's fine. I mean, their bodies are dissolving, but at least it's, <laughs> so it's slime and not... green goo feels safe. Green are you trying to say that? I think yeah. so, yeah. I mean, I <laughs> yeah. think if it was something that was more mucusy colored, um, 
I don't need to get more descriptive than that, but <laughs> um, yeah, it, it did. It sort of made me feel a little bit safer. But like, I mean, as you can see, ghosts and phantoms are all over the place in this film. Like, were you scared by these presences or like, and I should say that this film definitely speaks to a bodily sense of horror because your own body is dissolving. So do you feel like, because I see this as the direction many contemporary horror films are taking. So do you feel the same way? I mean, I'm not asking Leah because. <laughs> Man. Um, so I felt, uh, I, I, I definitely felt the, the bodily sense of horror, this sort of, um, the, the horror evoked by the idea of a, of a body uh, breaking down and, and the sort of disgusting, abject green goo, I guess, that we all have fears about someday escaping from our body or something like that. So, so yeah, it's very much a, a sort of body horror movie. Um, the, the ghosts, I, I'm not much for ghosts and phantom movies. Like they don't, they don't get me. Um, I, I prefer, I, I prefer in a way body horror, gross things about the body. So were, was I scared by the, by the ghosts and phantoms? Not, not so much, I have to say. But one quick, quick question. Were you scared by The Shining? Because you are, you are saying that you, don't, you are not that into this ghost and presences film. So I just wonder. Uh, I, was, I was scared by The Shining. Well, uh, and ghosts done right, I think, can be incredibly terrifying. I think ghosts done wrong just aren't, right? Yeah. I mean, it might be just as simple as that. I mean, I'll give you my, my, my feeling about this film is that it was sort of, um, it was sort of like a hospital melodrama, but, yes. but, with, <laughs> but, but it just happened to end like a horror movie. Um, so, so like you have, and it, and it feels sort of like intentionally invoking, um, sort of melodramatic tropes about, about, you know, this very exaggerated drama of people not being able to do their job right and having dark secrets and, uh, and, and sort of that interpersonal conflict and accusations and people getting caught doing the wrong thing. That's all very sort of uh, uh, really heavy melodrama stuff. And it, and it has these sort of like gradual fade outs to, to transition between scenes that also seems like this sort of uh, melodramatic trope. And just the setting, being in a hospital. So many melodramas happen in hospitals, especially on television. Um, Are you seeing Grey's Anatomy? It did. I felt the same way. I felt like the melodrama... There was something about the way that the doctors and nurses all talked to each other and communicated that felt like it could, it was just like an episode of Grey's Anatomy gone wrong, um, <laughs> which I, I don't know. I sort of enjoyed that part of it, but that to sort of lay horror over that um, felt sort of fun to play with that and to stretch that, stretch both the hospital melodrama and the horror uh, genre in those directions felt fun. I'll also say that what was most terrifying about this film is the idea of medical malpractice, right? I mean, the things that are most terrifying are really basic scenes about nurses not being able to find veins and uh, suturing, not being able to do sutures correctly. Um, it was all just sort of the basic stuff. And it made me realize like how like hospitals are kind of a crazy place. The things that are happening to bodies in hospitals, it's 
It's a marvel, but it's also terrifying. It's a little bit of, it, it's sort of a terrifying movie to watch right now, not because of the sudden appearance of ghosts and phantoms and even the grossness of the green goo, but because it's such a terribly run hospital. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's such, it's such like a, I, I can't imagine this was filmed in a real hospital, right? Because they have ceilings where pipes are exposed and the and the hallways are, are sort of like, they look like they're concrete and and they're damp and dark. It just, the space doesn't, and I think the space sort of like gradually changes throughout the movie and I won't give away why I think that happens, but, uh, uh, but yeah, it just, it just seems like the, like the really revolting thing about this movie was just how gross the hospital was. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, and I don't know if that's something that other horror films have played with or if this is something fairly unique. But like, I would say some of the effective effectiveness of this film comes from all these male practices like because we are watching house or Grace anatomy and all those great genius like doctors are solving all these rare diseases that you might never hear of like so i feel like that uh the film itself really plays with these like uh the comfort all these tv audience uh, feel when they are watching these kind of TV dramas. So I know. Because, uh, I also want to bring out that because like um, all these horror films to me uh, work like moral dramas. So like because it was in a sense philosophically speaking, you could say that it is it is playing with this line between life and death. And we all, we we still have all these zombie TV series. Uh, and we have Walking Dead, we have others. All uh, very realistic shows. Yes. So I don't know. I feel like it has to. I mean, you are, if you are going to shoot a horror film, it has to be, um, in a sense, to be about this moral dilemma, right? I, I, I'm not sure about this, though. About death itself and society and how we sort of... Like, you... It, it cannot be a simple horror film. It has to be something about, you know, has to tell you something. I, I, I think that's fair. I think that's fair too. And I, and I like that. I mean, I was watching this movie thinking this movie has to be allegorical. This just feels like an allegory for something. But honestly, I don't know enough about contemporary Japanese society to know precisely or, or, or even sort of, Gener- I, I guess very generally, I could probably venture a guess as to what it's allegorizing, but uh, but yeah, to some to some extent, I'm I'm sort of in the dark uh, as to the other side, the meaning of the allegory. All right, well, let's end on that note. Infection plays at Film Scene on Tuesday, October 21st at 6 p.m. as part of Bijou Horizons, a series dedicated to bringing awareness to world cinema. For more information on Bijou Horizons, check out our website, bijou.uiowa.edu. Before we move on to our next film, let's check on the weather. It is currently 61 degrees in Iowa City. This evening, look out for patchy fog. There will be a low of 43 degrees. Tomorrow, Thursday, again fog with a high of 67 degrees. You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our third and final film. Fargo is Joel and Ethan Cohen's highly lauded 1996 
crime thriller set in the wintry landscape of Minnesota in 1987. The story follows a series of unfolding and often violent events that are set in motion by the pitiful but nonetheless greedy car car salesman Jerry Lundegaard, played by William H. Macy. In the opening scene of the film, Jerry travels to the eponymous Fargo, North Dakota to meet up with two criminals, Carl Showalter, played by Steve Buscemi, and Geir Grimsrud, played by the Swedish actor Peter Stormare. Jerry's plan is to hire these two men to kidnap his wife and ransom her to his father-in-law for $80,000, a sum that will later be divided between Jerry and his seedy co-conspirators. It may seem counterintuitive to begin a film in the whodunit genre with an exposition that reveals precisely who did it. However, Fargo's effectiveness lies instead with its alluring cinematography, unexpected dialogue, and, most importantly, a cast of unusual and unpredictable characters. In fact, in my opinion, Marge Gunderson, the pregnant police chief of Brainerd, Minnesota, played by the fabulous Frances McDormand, is the singular component that has given Fargo not only persistent praise, but also a permanent place in film history. Thus, I have two questions to begin today's discussion of Fargo, One, what makes Marge such an impactful and enduring character? And two, why aren't there more female characters like Marge in contemporary cinema? All right. uh, So in response to one, I'm going to give away, I think, a little bit of my response to what was, I think, going to be your next discussion question, which is my, my reading of how this film does Minnesota or treats, you know, how it reads Minnesotans. (laughs) Um, which is, which is another reason I think that this film has, uh, enduring appeals. It's just that the accents are great. Um, uh, no, that's, I'm just kidding. Um, so I mean, I don't think that's wrong. (laughs) Obviously part of the fun of the film is repeating the lines in the, you betcha in the, yeah. (laughs) Oh, geez. Oh, geez. Um, so my understanding of, of what this, or my reading of what this film is, is about, uh, is, is just how weird it is that people, who are who live sort of like on the edge of the abyss? Who live in this in this uh, part of the country that is depicted in the film over and over again is basically like just a snowy wasteland where uh, the snow stretches on into infinity, and there there's no variation in the landscape. And it I, and I don't think Minnesota is really like this, but that's definitely how the film depicts it. How weird it is that the people who live there are are such nice and even naive people, and that they even commit and investigate investigate crimes in this. Uh, and again, I'm not saying that that's really what people in Minneapolis are like, but but that's how they're depicted in the film. And so so it's I think it's it's something of a tribute to to their character that they can remain so unflappably nice. Uh, well, it's not necessarily tribute because Jerry is also sort of unflappably nice until the, until the end, and he is a criminal. Um, but I think that's one of the things that makes her such a great character is that in confronting the this sort of like terrible, all these terrible evil deeds, she's always sort of uh, uh, endearingly nice and and uh, uh, maybe bouncy is the wrong word, but she's. <laughs> I think she's bouncy. Maybe bouncy's at the end of the film, you know, her one of the one of her last lines in the film is and it's a beautiful day today. You know, it's it's sort of it's she's such an optimistic person even though she's confronting, you know, evil. 
she's confronting evil and she lives she lives in what is depicted as a as a wasteland. But that's that is because she has this warm home to go back to, right? Because I feel like in between like between Fargo and No Country of uh, for all men, like the the biggest difference is that this this safe haven uh, has disappeared. The safe haven of home, yes, in general. Mm-hmm. And do you think that I mean, does Marge exist separately from that, or is she creating the safe haven of home? I think that's a good question, but like, I'm not sure about that because I feel I mean the appeal of this film is that it really although you have this huge contrast between the wintry landscape and the really warm, like comfortable home, right? So, I mean, so it is satisfying to watch this film because like after you watch this film, you feel like very, very coddly in a sense that you want to be coddled. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's fair. Um, I'm going to hold you to my uh, second question though. Why do we not see female characters that are this sort of enduring and uh, I don't know if empathetic is the right word. I mean, actually that's probably exactly the right word, but there's something more, something more to uh, her character that I think is so phenomenal in this film. Why don't we see those types of female characters in cinema? I think you should be the first to, to give a preliminary answer to this question, right? Since you are the feminist here. I'm the only feminist here. <laughs> I, I think he's just trying to uh, avoid having to come up with an answer to that question. Right, let's, let's, let me state it this way. Are there other women characters that I haven't thought of that are just somehow seem to walk a line that is neither objectifying um, them in terms of uh, the way that they're portrayed and their sort of embodiedness on screen, um, but also not victimizing um them, uh, I, you know, she just, there's something really great about her character. She's smart. She's caring. She's, uh, you know, you're kind of with her to the end. She's just doing her job and she does it well. And, um, I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I was watching, uh, Gone Girl last week and it has, uh, uh, one of the characters in it. I think one of my favorite characters in it was the female detective in that film. Mm. And, and I remember thinking, you know, to me, that movie was like three different movies in a movie. And, and the first movie was kind of Fargo. Um, yeah, a, absolutely. A, an inferior mm-hmm. version of Fargo. Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, I, but but it, you know, thinking like, oh, that's Marge Gunderson. While I was uh, uh, watching that movie, I thought, well, why, why, twenty years after Fargo, am, am I just now going? Oh, look, another Marge Gunderson, right? Mm-hmm. It, it seems like, yeah, we just don't get on television. You might find maybe more sort of female detectives like that, like maybe Mariska Hargitay on Law and Order Special Victims Unit, but in mainstream in mainstream cinema. Uh, I, I think I think they they think they the they. the powers that be. <laughs> I think they think it won't sell or something like that. I don't know. I, I also it occurred to me while watching this movie that Fargo. Uh, yeah, Fargo. Okay. Sorry that that the nineties were a time, you know, late eighties and through the mid nineties were were a time when relative to now character like a really well-made character could sell a movie could make a movie successful and i feel like that's less true now um so i was thinking of like 
you know, not just Marge, who's a, an excellently drawn character, but really every character in this movie. And also the fact that we talked about LA confidential a few weeks ago and how all of these movies are, are driven, are really driven by how, how, uh, easy it is to watch these characters and how well drawn, how well written the dialogue is and how well it draws these characters. Um, so I, I think, you know, that that's not a feminist reason necessarily. It's just the 90s <laughs> were the golden age of cinema. Yeah. People aren't saying that enough. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's not a reliable theory. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and I think, I think, Hollywood, maybe you could probably make an argument that Hollywood got more conservative um, when, uh, you know, not just not just video, but streaming video and not not just consoles, but computer gaming. When when all of these things started uh, making it turn more and more toward sort of blockbuster tentpole releases that have ballooning budgets that make it uh, less possible to give money to to more modest projects like like Fargo that take risks in making, um, you know, a, a, a woman detective, the, the main character and not victimizing her. Um, you know, that's a really interesting point because one of my other thoughts while watching this again was one, not only do I very much enjoy this film, revisiting it this many years later, but also knowing that, um, you know, in 1996, this film got a lot of attention, both Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, uh, thought it was the best film of 1996. Um, but it is a slow-moving film. It is set in the middle of nowhere or the edge of the abyss, as you said, Pat. Um, and at the time, it was made by relatively unknown directors, and yet it pleased so many moviegoers and critics alike that um, maybe it is something about being just pre-internet, that people were willing to be open to sitting in the theater and watching something that's just a little bit slower with actors that are a little less known by directors who are also a little less known. Is that fair? Or do you think that's a, that's too easy? I think one of the reasons is definitely that Coen brothers are very, very familiar with all different genres and all different masterpieces in the history of cinema. So they really know how to maintain a certain level of suspense and thrill, and thrill throughout uh, the narrative. And, we, we, I mean, in this film particularly, we have all these unexpected events or developments happening all over the time. So it really hooks you up. You want to see more. Like you, although we, I mean, we constantly seeing this wintry, snowy landscape that seemingly nothing is happening. But in that sort of really thick or dense atma- uh, atmospheric setting, you, you feel that something is going to happen. So I feel like that's why it really captures your attention. I think that's fair. I mean, now we know that the Coen brothers have gone on to become a household name with uh, films including The Big Lebowski, which came out shortly, well, I guess two years after uh, Fargo, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? No Country for Old Men, of course. True Grit, most recently Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, I'm wondering what you guys make of this corpus of films. Um, and that is to say, how would you define the Coen brothers as auteurs? Or do you define them as auteurs? And if so, what would you say their trademark is? Uh, I, I would say that all of... Uh, no, 
Not all of their films. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, noir is such a broad, a broad designator, but de- definitely something that they, noir is something that has influenced them a lot. Um, uh, and a lot of their films at least show the influence of having watched, you know, a lot of classic Hollywood noirs. Um, but I, I think also a fascination uh, uh, maybe with the really, the really dark parts of, of, of the American experience or, or of the human experience. Um, no country for old men makes me think about that. Um, the man, the man without a name, the man, with, the, the man with, who wasn't there, the man who wasn't there. Wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah That's thank a you. great one. Uh, uh, you know, even, even the big Lebowski to some extent deals, deals with some pretty, you know, it deals more playfully with like nihilism and, and stuff and stuff like that. But, but it seems like they're really interested in, in, you know, the sort of big questions about uh, evil and nothing. Uh, is it, do you think it's deeply American? I mean, I don't know, Chung-Min, does it feel like there's something about the American experience? I, get, I think all of their films are set essentially in the U.S., right? They're not. Yeah. 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 I, I know. I feel like when I was watching Fargo, I feel like this is a Minnesota version of Blue Velvet, but not as bleak. I mean, because, I mean, we all know, like, David Lynch is a pervert, but, um, <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I think at that time, they weren't, I mean, Coen Brothers weren't so that existential or nihilistic. I mean, they still have hope for humanity <laughs> in that sense. Uh, yeah, I, I would say they still, you know, that will will triumph over the evil and then well, maybe triumph is the wrong word. We'll go on <laughs> despite uh, despite the uh, the the dark emptiness underlying everything. All right, guys, let's take a quick break, and when we return, we'll continue our discussion of Fargo. Support for KRUI is brought to you in part by The Broken Spoke, who, in addition to offering a wide selection of bicycles, provide bike assembly and maintenance services at their Iowa City location, 602 South Dubuque Street. For more information, visit thebrokenspoke.com or call 319-338-8900. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at Film Scene. We're currently discussing Fargo. So uh, we've covered uh, feminism, nihilism. Uh, I, I want to maybe go back just briefly, if we can, to the idea of Minnesota nice. Um, this expression which is used to describe the stereotypical behavior of people born and raised in Minnesota to be courteous and reserved and mild-mannered. And, of course, many of our characters in Fargo have uh, an extreme case or a severe case of Minnesota nice, uh, even when they are in the midst of doing some very bad deeds or witnessing some very bad deeds. And I'm curious what you think about this film's message about Minnesota nice. Is it... Is it pro Minnesota nice? Is it anti Minnesota nice? Um, what, what do you guys think is happening with that? Uh, I, I, it it sort of sometimes it's sometimes you know it, maybe not sometimes always it's played for for humor right and sometimes it's more or less dark humor sometimes it's it, it feels more like a gag like when um, 
Marge is interviewing the the two women who have slept with the criminals, trying to track down the criminals, and they're like, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so it's, sometimes it's sort of a caricature, but at, at other times, especially in its its treatment of Jerry, it's about uh, it's a it's about how Minnesota nice doesn't doesn't exclude the sort of ugliest things that you can do and plan. It just makes it more ironic. Um, so he's you know planning the fake kidnapping of his wife so that he can get money because he's stolen it from the bank or or whatever. Actually, it's really it's actually kind of hard to get a handle on what exactly the MacGuffin is in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, so so it's played for irony there. Um, but in in the in the figure of Marge, I think like I sort of said earlier, it's sort of celebrated as this like way that people uh, survive. Uh, I guess in this in this place that is pretty hard to to live in between uh, November and March, you know. Well, I would say they definitely have this cynical attitude to this Minnesota nice. I mean, I would say that they have this cynical attitude towards all these social appearances that people have to maintain a certain sense because uh, to maintain these social appearances is to create all this fake illusional MacGuffin that you have to pursue, you have to get, get a hold of. So, uh, so to, to us, like the audiences, we feel like, oh, you are trying to do something that is meaningless. But like for, for those characters in the film, they are, uh, those MacGuffins are very important. So I feel like that's how they play with their critique of these Minnesota nice and different kinds of genre conventions. Well, see, I, I understand that the the cynical view of it, clearly someone who's willing to do very bad deeds, but still be well-mannered is, uh, a, you know, almost worse than somebody who's ill-mannered and doing bad things, right? Because at least then you know who's bad and who's good. But I do think in the case of Marge, her attitude and her demeanor and the way that she treats people is celebrated, as you said, Pat. I think that um, there is something kind of lovely about staying calm and treating people with respect. And uh, she has that crazy run-in with an old uh, friend from high school, maybe ex-boyfriend or just maybe old friend, uh, who is acting super bizarre towards her. And she just manages to keep chatting and not to make him feel she tries not to make him feel badly which seems like a an admirable skill that's actually a really brilliant scene because it's it's thinking about what he was hiding during that conversation that leads her to sort of like begin to solve the the mystery of what's going on and at first you're thinking like why is this scene in this movie and it's integrated in a really well way in a really good way that illustrates really well uh, the characters and is integrated into the plot. I think it's just a, a, an example of really, really good and interesting writing and characterization. Um, that wasn't your point, really. Uh, <laughs> no, but that's, that's making me rethink the scene again. Um, uh, so what, what was the original question? Minnesota nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you, I mean, I was essentially reiterating some of what you had said before that with Marge, there does seem to be, I don't think that the Coen brothers are entirely cynical towards the way that they've drawn her character. I think that well, with I her, have one thing to say. Oh, no. She is the wife of one of the directors. So in that sense, 
I mean, to kind of like restrain, they would kind of restrain themselves, right? I don't know. I, I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> I, I don't think that. I don't think they're worried about making Francis McDormand look look, uh, you know, treating her cynically. I don't think that she's treated nicely because she's Francis McDormand. I think that they wrote the character, and and just, I mean, they casted Francis McDormand in movies before she was uh, Joel's wife, right? And, and also, anyway. she—I mean, she performs that role beautifully. I mean, we, she won the Oscar that year, right? So yeah. I'm not the first person that decided this, but it's—I think it would have been easier to almost have portrayed the Minnesota nice with that harsh cynicism, and instead she walks this line that um, otherwise would have been a completely ridiculous character. She pulls it off. I mean, yeah. she I, really pulls you in. I think the effect of it at the end is like it, for, for most of the movie, it seems to be mocking. Minnesotans and, and then sort of at the end you realize you know that Marge's way of of behaving is really the only way to get through uh those experiences right you have to at some point just go well I'm just going to be nice and treat everybody with respect because that's the only way to survive and I really like that it get, the movie gives us a sort of foreign outsider you know the killer Peter Stormare um who who is very silent and is sort of like the you know, he openly engages in what everybody else is hiding, which is like murder and 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 all of these terrible things. And and he's very silent and he doesn't want to talk. And I, and I, it's really funny that he's sort of like stuck in a world where people do the same thing as him, but won't stop talking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's it's really a nice a nice uh, an illustrative irony, I think. So as of this year, uh, Fargo is now a television series on FX starring Billy Bob Thornton and Martin Freeman. It is co-produced by the Coen brothers. And so far, not only has the series been successful, it has even been renewed for a second season. So this is not the first attempt to make Fargo into a television show. The first pilot was made in 1997, which was starring Edie Falco, who seems like she would have been a good fit. But that series was never picked up. Uh, Chongmin, I know that you've had a chance to watch just the first episode, as have I. So neither of us have watched all of season one, um, which, you know, is out in its entirety. But why do you think that Fargo has finally found its television audience? Did you think that that first episode was successful? Um, what are your initial reactions? I think we really forgot to talk about how funny Fargo is like oh, it's a funny film. I mean, it's a fun film to watch. You get to enjoy all these weird sequences in the film. Like, I mean, I don't have to spoil the plot, but like, uh, how they deal with the corpse. Yes, in the film. I think probably the most famous scene in the film. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like uh, the comed- comedic factor or po- comedic element of this film is why uh, it got picked up and to be adapted into a TV series. Because, I mean, we, we also see that uh, those elements in, I mean, as, at least in the first episode, right? Yeah, you're right. We did forget to, bet, uh, to talk about the comedy um, that's in this film. And it's probably because I'm a feminist and brought everybody down. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 no problem there. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but the, it did. Uh, yeah, there's some 
there's some very funny scenes in what is quite frankly a very long pilot episode. I mean, that episode is well over an hour, mm-hmm. maybe an hour 15, hour 20. Yeah. Um, and certainly it wouldn't have been able to sustain itself. And I can only imagine it, it wouldn't have been able to sustain a series long um, TV show if that dark comedy didn't come through in the TV mm-hmm. show. I would, yeah, I would agree. And I think that uh, actually, I think both Martin Freeman and Billy Bob Thornton are doing um, a good, uh, are doing a decent job. Martin Freeman is the sort of William H. Macy-esque character, although things have been shifted and tweaked in this uh, in the series. And Billy Bob Thornton is sort of the a, a more soulless, the killer type, the, the paid-to-kill um, character. I personally... I really liked Billy Bob Thornton's character. I thought he was he was getting it more right than Martin Freeman trying to reinvent uh, the William H. Macy character. Oh, definitely. And I feel like, I mean, the series for me is su- successful because uh, it is sort of like a per- perfect combination of Fargo and No Country for Old Men in the sense that um, Billy Bob Thornton Thornton is this great character, just like Javier Bardem in mm. No Country for All Men. This deadpan character, like uh, talk about everything very, very, very seriously. But like, also, I mean, he also brings out laughters in in the audiences because it is so so weird to see someone say these things so seriously, right? And in in such a deadpan manner, yeah. And I I think I liked uh, that's so true. I f- completely forgot about Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men. Watching this, um, I was so sort of stuck in Fargo. Uh, but yeah, he he's such a, a almost true psychopath that his character gets to do all kinds of odd things in addition to you know killing people um, and. Only just because you mentioned it earlier, Pat, the sort of discussion of Gone Girl and sort of a true psychopath. Um, I've been thinking a lot about that this week, like what it is that we want from psychopath characters in in movies. <laughs> um, I should probably stop talking about Gone Girl because it's a recent film. But um, but yeah, I no liked psychopaths in Gone. Girl. <laughs> <laughs> I liked I liked the I, I liked that you you don't know what Billy Bob's character is. Is is going is going to do basically? He's just sort of a mischief maker because he's not tied to a certain psychology. Yeah, and like, and in that sense, it is very like no country for all men because no place is safe anymore. So it's mm-hmm. not like old Fargo, like you have a safe haven to go back to. It's like old place is dangerous, and I mean one of the moral lesson for that series is that uh, you could really feel like, I mean, you have to be really careful to everyone because like if you bully someone or you say something that is, that is not nice to someone, <laughs> you might get killed. So it's, I know, it, it is scary in that sense. Yeah, that's true. Although do you not think that the way that the first episode uh, functions is to set up what is essentially a Marge character moving forward as uh, as a, the police chief of the town? And I'm not familiar with that actress who's playing it in uh, the television series, but I think she's a center of, of sort of stability and warmth in the TV show. 
Uh, I would say that too, but um, I don't know. I feel like it's um, well. I mean, in terms of cinematography, narrative, everything is bleaker and more pessimistic than the original Fargo. So that's why I feel like this is this is not like Coen Brothers twenty years ago. And I mean, it's not directed by. Lamb, but I mean, it is definitely influenced by like all these works Coen Brothers made in these twenty years, not just Fargo. Yeah, that's true. That's true, and I think probably the the hope that you feel in Fargo has to be farther from the surface if you're making a long running uh, television series potentially. So I can see sort of why they're mm-hmm. making it a little bit darker, but maybe even a little bit wittier um, throughout. All right, let's end on that note. Once again, Fargo will be screened this Sunday, October 19th at 7 p.m. on Film Scene's rooftop for the final open-air show of the season. For more information about this event, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. To learn more about the Bijou Film Board's unique and long-standing role in the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema in Iowa City, please check out bijou.uiowa.edu. You've been listening to Bijou Banter. Pat, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Changmin, it's a pleasure as always. Oh, thank you too. (laughs) I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter next week.